Hey everyone, and welcome to Ask Shane Anything. This show is a reward for those who pledge at $7 or more per month. Those people can ask questions for Ask Shane Anything. Everybody else gets to watch the show as soon as it goes live, provided you're pledging at least $4 or more per month. I want to thank the people who hit that $7 target, because without them, this show wouldn't be possible. As always, you can ask me pretty much anything, as long as it's not too personal. Let's get to it. Our first question today comes from Derek D. 111 I'm not really a Sony fan or a Microsoft fan. I prefer PlayStation over Xbox, but that's besides the point. I really don't see any way Sony should influence any government over the Activision Blizzard acquisition. First of all, do you think Sony has any chance of influencing the sale? And second, should anyone, except for the hardcore Call of Duty Blizzard fans, even care? Okay, first of all, I guess I should establish where I stand on capitalism. I believe in capitalism. Um, I believe if you come up with a great idea or a great concept or a great product, you deserve to get paid for it. I believe in copyright to protect the stuff that you create from others stealing your ideas and taking it. So I am a capitalist and I do believe in capitalism. And so I'm not as hardline as Pactor is in that way. I do think there's some wiggle room for capitalism. And there are things that we can tweak to make it better, etc., etc. Now, as far as the Activision Blizzard acquisition by Microsoft is concerned, I feel like we've gone through this a bunch of times, but it is such a hot button topic because there are a lot of people like you who maybe aren't PlayStation fanboys per se, but you've owned a PlayStation most of your life. And if you can, that's the platform that you prefer to buy, maybe because you like the exclusives that Sony creates versus the exclusives that Microsoft or Nintendo create. Totally get that. Totally understand it. And you could do that without being an irrational fanboy of a platform. You can prefer one without completely dismissing the merits of the others. And I appreciate that you're that way. And I'm not surprised because I feel like most people who come to Sifton and consume our content are those people. Fanboys... Fanboys don't last too long on Sifted, and they don't last too long watching Game Face either, because we really don't give a crap about platforms at all, and inevitably, we're going to piss somebody off, because we're just going to be honest about their platform. And so, we are not the fanboy magnet that a lot of other outlets are, and I'm totally cool with that, and I wouldn't say that's by design, I think that's just organically happened. So, I appreciate that that is how you kind of look at things, and I would... I would really hope that most people, at least once they get over a certain age, would also start to look at things that way. So getting that out of the way, that I have no platform allegiances, I think you guys know that already, and you don't either, now I can answer the question on those grounds. So no, I do not think that PlayStation is going to have any influence over directly over what ultimately happens with the acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft. Now, I don't suspect that PlayStation is going to go to these governing bodies that control whether this deal goes through and complain, although they have done that a little bit, not in the U.S. overseas. Sony has done that a little bit so far. I do not expect them to do that in the U.S. because I believe Microsoft is going to do it for them. Microsoft <laughs> is willing to make big-time sacrifices to make sure that this deal goes through. For example... It just recently shared that it is going to allow Call of Duty to be released on PlayStation consoles basically for the foreseeable future. So at least the next three to five years, 
I would not do that. If I was Microsoft, there is no way in hell I would keep making Call of Duty for PlayStation platforms. And I know there are PlayStation owners sitting there right now. Maybe you're one of them, Derek D. It's like, oh, screw you, Shane. No, that need No! <laughs> Microsoft spent a ton of money on Call of to buy Call of Duty, to buy all the games and franchises that Activision Blizzard creates and has created. That's why it costs so much. I think it is completely asinine for Microsoft to leave some crumbs for PlayStation. I just think it is. It makes no business sense to me at all. Now, I get it. Microsoft is like, well, we don't want to piss off the Sony fanboys because then we'll never convert them to come over and buy our machine and ultimately subscribe to Game Pass. But here's a wake-up call for you, Microsoft. They're never going to buy your console. Maybe. If Xbox was the only console left on the planet, they might consider it, but I have a feeling some of them would just quit playing games altogether instead of getting an Xbox console. So there's a certain point where you become delusional. And I think Microsoft is kind of there right now with this whole deal. I think it is so petrified of the deal not going through that it is giving too many concessions to PlayStation. So no, I don't think that PlayStation, in America at least, is going to influence whether the deal goes through or not. I think Microsoft is doing it for PlayStation. It wants to make sure that there are no roadblocks for the governing bodies to keep the acquisition from going through. And it is erring on the side of caution. And arguably, I would say it is erring way too far on the side of caution. I have no idea why it's decided to bend over backwards for PlayStation. There's no monopoly. Even if the governing bodies decided, oh, okay, well, we really want to dig into this, eventually they're going to realize that there's no monopoly here and the sale should go through. Could it delay the sale a few months? Sure. Does that matter in the grand scheme of things? No, it doesn't matter at all. Let it take three months, Microsoft, because you're banking on the next five years of Call of Duty sales. It's, I have no idea why Microsoft is doing this. I do understand that there's a certain level of goodwill that you want to build in the industry in general, and I think that's what Microsoft is trying to do. I mean, let's be honest, Phil Spencer pats everybody else on the back. If Nintendo puts out a good game, he sends out a tweet. Great game, Nintendo does the same thing with PlayStation. He is trying to play all three sides of the fence, and I don't think it really matters or it works, because at the end of the day, all people care about are the games and the products. If you have the games that people want to play, they're going to come to your platform, for the most part. Some hardcore fanboys obviously are the exception, as I mentioned earlier. So it's the, if you build it, they will come idea. And I don't subscribe to that 100%. I don't think that just because you build something great is going to be a success. There are cases where that does not happen. But when you're Microsoft and you have the money to market those successes and those ideas, then absolutely, if you build it, they will come. People will find out about it and they will know. The only way that doesn't work is if people just don't know the thing exists. Kind of like Sifted. So I think Microsoft is playing way too nice with this wholesale. I have no idea why it's doing it. It's absurd to think that it's going to pull hardcore Sony fanboys away from PlayStation and bring them over to Xbox. That's not what this sale should be about, and it shouldn't have to be that way. Again, the proof will be in the pudding. If they really love Call of Duty that much, they will get an Xbox or whatever they ever else they have to buy or do to be able to play Call of Duty. So I think Microsoft is being way too nice with this acquisition, and it needs to play hardball a little bit more. Now, to the second part of your question. 
I do believe people should care. I mean, now you say, except for the hardcore Call of Duty fan. I mean, isn't that everybody that's involved in this deal? I mean, let's be honest. Activision Blizzard, it has, you know, Overwatch and Diablo and they're in StarCraft. There are fans of those games, but the golden goose here is Call of Duty. As far as maybe the better way to look at it is who should care. And I think all players should care. People who play games should care. People who spend their money on video games should care. It's, it is, again, Call of Duty for the most part, but there are other franchises there that some people really love. Some people really, really love Diablo. Some people really, really love StarCraft. So saying, like, except for the fans, I mean, that's why you make the purchase in the first place is because there are fans of these things. And you want those fans to continue to support these franchises now that they're under your stewardship. So who should care? Everybody. Like, everyone should care. It's going to impact everything. If they really did make Call of Duty a platform exclusive, it would have earth-shattering ramifications. Like, literally, the console war could turn overnight. If it literally just cut off Call of Duty from PlayStation, everything could change overnight. So I do think... Everyone should care who cares about games. And look, I don't want to accuse you of this, but I do feel like a lot of PlayStation fans keep trying to act like it's not a big deal. They want to lessen, at least for themselves internally, lessen the impact of PlayStation losing all of Activision Blizzard's games. I get it, it's this weird, like, copium, like, defense mechanism that people, not just game players, but just people in general have. If something bad happens to them, they try to find a way to explain it away and make it feel like it's not as bad as people think. And I think that's what's happening a lot with PlayStation and PlayStation fans right now is they know it's bad, but they're just trying to rationalize why it may not be that bad. And honestly, Microsoft is helping them along. Okay, our next question comes from Sifted from Kev Masters. I was watching an old episode of GameSpot looking back on GameSpot's 10 out of 10 reviews with Jeff Gersman and Danny O'Dwyer. Jeff talks about how he had to calmly argue with GameSpot's editor-in-chief at the time on why Ocarina of Time deserved a 10 out of 10. History proves Jeff right. It's interesting to think how one score could have removed Ocarina of Time from the number one spot on Metacritic. My question is, what was it like for you working at GameSpot back in the day, and do you think games aren't reviewed as critically today as they were back then? Especially in regards to getting 10 out of 10, it's mind-boggling to think that many outlets were as strict with their reviews. Oh, okay, Kev Masters, let me rewind my life back 22 years now. In fact, it's almost to the month, 22 years ago, that I started working at GameSpot. Um, this is a big question. So, first of all, I would say is GameSpot was the perfect place for me to go after graduating from college with a journalism degree because a lot of the things that I had been taught in college were put in practice there. <laughs> it had a legitimate editorial environment, a serious editorial environment. So, you know, you're picking up on this story from Gerstmann about a 10 out of 10 for Ocarina of Time, but that happened all the time with our reviews. Um, anytime I gave a game anywhere around a nine on GameSpot, I had to go in and talk to Jeff, who was the reviews editor, or, in other cases, I would have to go talk to Greg Kasavin, who was the editor-in-chief that Jeff referenced in his story. Um, that was good. That was a good thing. Me being called into the principal's office 
anytime I wanted to give a really big review score, it makes you think long and hard about how you're evaluating games. It makes you... It makes you a better critical thinker, I guess is the best way I could put it. Not just about games, but about things in general. Um, so I think that that structure, that environment was good. I think that's the way journalism should be done, regardless of whether you're covering games or anything else. Um, that's good, honest journalism. So I feel like there was a great backbone there for editorial integrity. A lot of the things I learned in my couple years working at GameSpot way back then, resonate today. They resonated when I worked at Game Trailers and when I worked at Tech TV and when I worked at G4 on X-Play. Why do you think people respected X-Play's review scores? I mean, the reviews were funny, and that's what made the show great. That's what made people show up every day was the comedy and the sketch and not knowing what you were going to see in the show on any given day. But behind it all were reliable review scores. Go back and look at any comments about X-Play from back in the day. They'll all say, this was funny, that was funny, but they they believed in the scores that we were giving games, and they were right to. We were doing things the right way behind the scenes to make sure we were as accurate as possible with our review scores on X-Play. And then I took that same concept to game trailers with me. When people had big scores or really low scores there, they had to come into my office and rationalize them to me. It forces people to think long and hard about how they're evaluating things. So yes, I think it's great the way that GameSpot ran editorial back then. Now to the rest of your question about are things still that way? Have things continued to be that way? I would argue that there was a tree there at GameSpot of people and it didn't last that long. Like I left and then like six months later they had a bunch of layoffs and like, and then things splintered off on a giant bomb. But the people who were the core of that GameSpot editorial, they ended up spreading out across the industry, and they all shared the same aesthetic. And honestly, like I think back to IGN back when I was at GameSpot, and we would go to events, and I would talk to them, and they were all great guys, and I loved all the guys at IGN, but they were nowhere near as serious about editorial like GameSpot was. They just weren't. They were more of the fun lifestyle gaming outlet back then, and they still kind of are. Um, so I felt like we had a different perspective on editorial back then. We took it way more seriously. Um, our Game of the Year award uh, discussions at GameSpot were legendary. We would go into a war room and argue for a day over the awards. That also continued over for me into G4 and game trailers and things like that. So when you teach somebody something, they eventually go on and they teach it to someone else. And that I feel like that core that we had at GameSpot ended up trickling down into the entire industry as people got new jobs at different outlets and started kind of sharing that ideal with other editorial staff. So I think it was great, honestly. I And I do wish that more outlets today took it more seriously because I feel like at a certain point... Games journalism decided that n nobody's right and nobody's wrong. That everybody can be right, as long as they're speaking their truth. But there are parts of video games that are objectively good or bad. Either there's bugs or they're not. Either the engine runs well or it doesn't. Either the combat feels connected to the player or it doesn't. There are parts of games that are just... There's really no debating whether they're good or bad or not. A story? Sure. Up to debate. Comedy? Sure. Up to debate. An art style? Sure. Up for debate. Other stuff is not. And I feel like there's been this pervading ideal that, like, nobody's wrong anymore 
because everybody can speak their own truth. And it's not just in games, obviously. That has trickled down into the rest of society. And I do think it has made reviews soft. I mean, just look at it. It's absurd because the scale that most major outlets now use is 7 to 10. Go look at their reviews. You will rarely ever find a review score that goes below a 6. And games that are abysmal still get like a 6 or a 5. So I can just tell you when we started doing our gaming vows on Sifted, we don't submit, or we did it when we used to do them a lot, our review scores to Metacritic because our reviews actually observe the 5-point scale. And so our reviews were so out of whack with everybody else that I didn't feel right going and submitting our reviews to Metacritic because it affects people's bonuses and their their lifestyle and their being able to feed their family. So I didn't feel right. I wasn't willing to play along with the 7 to 10 scale that everybody else was. I also didn't feel right sort of having this whole other idea of how games should be evaluated that destroys this mean or this average that ultimately parlays into how much people get paid. So... Yeah, I think reviews are way soft now. I think people are afraid to call out games. And a lot of it has to do with the accessibility and that people have huge social media followings and they don't want to lose followers. All this stuff ties into it that wasn't there in 2002. Nobody cared about, like, how many followers I had on MySpace when I first started in the industry. That wasn't a thing. Like, nobody hired people into journalism roles based upon how many followers they had on Twitter back then. You didn't have to consider it. All you had to consider was being as accurate and reliable as possible. And I don't feel like that's the main objective anymore. And I just feel like society in general has kind of propelled it in that direction. All right, our last question for today's episode comes from AJ the Legend. Shane, I am wondering when you believe the gaming industry will return to pre-COVID standards in relation to hitting release date targets. Considering the amount of games that were delayed this year alone, is this the new norm? Well, AJ, I will say this. If you had asked me this question mid-pandemic, I don't even know what mid-pandemic is anymore. Are we still in the pandemic? I guess we are. But if you'd asked me this question a year and a half ago, maybe that's a better way to phrase it, I probably would have said that it would get fixed a lot more quickly than it has. And a lot of that is based upon what the publishers and developers were telling us that, you know, now everyone's working from home and it hasn't slowed down our development and everything's working great. So if you'd asked me this question back then when they were saying stuff like that, I'd have been like, no, the, the publishers are telling us that it's not causing problems. But as it turns out, it was causing problems and it is still causing problems. Working from home has slowed down game development. In some cases, maybe it only slowed it down long enough so that they could get equipment to everybody's homes and everybody had um, great rigs to work on at their home office and then they got on their network and were able to communicate with each other and send files to each other very quickly. Whatever amount of time that took, okay, that set the industry back. The rest, though... Once all that stuff gets set up, is just people not being as productive or the process not being as fluent and productive as it was when they were all working together in an office. Now, I'm not the guy sitting here saying everybody needs to go back to work and everyone needs to everything needs to go back to the way it was before the pandemic. I don't believe that at all. In fact, 95% of jobs, I believe, can be done from home and people shouldn't have to go into the office at all. Game development is different, though, and a lot of that comes down to just being able to share your work very quickly with other people. So you finish 
let's say you're working on level design or whatever, you finish a, a level and you need to upload that to servers so other people who need to work on that level can get access to it and start working on it. It's much more quickly when you're local than it is sending it through a VPN over the internet into a server, waiting for it to propagate in the server so everybody can access it, blah, blah, blah. The production process for video games is never going to be quite as smooth as it is when people are working in person. And so to your point of, is this going to change? Is this going to stick around? Maybe, I mean, I think we'll get to a point where the backlog of all the games that have been delayed through the last 18 months, it was not just this year. I mean, games started being delayed last year in 2021. Once we get through that backlog, and it does look like the first quarter of 2023 is going to get rid of a lot of that backlog. It is going to be insane with game releases. I think then things will get mostly to norm, back to normal. I do think that, let's say, if your typical development cycle, when you were all working together, was like two and a half years, like now maybe it stretches to three years. I do think the overall length of development is going to be extended at least a little bit due to people working from home, but it's a worthy trade-off for the quality of life improvements that these people get, not having to commute every day. In a lot of cases, people now work more hours because they're working from home because they're not burning an hour and a half each way getting to work, particularly in places like LA or San Francisco, where a lot of game development happens. So I do think we'll get to a place where they're not delaying games constantly like they are right now. Um, I think everyone will work through the kinks of work from home, and once again, all the gear and equipment will be set up and that process will be ironed out. I think once that happens, we won't be seeing as many games being delayed, but I do think that the development cycles in general will be a little bit extended. All right, that's it for Ask Shane Anything. Thanks again to all of you guys who pledge at the Ask Shane tier or higher, that's $7 or more per month. That gives you the ability to ask questions for this show, though everybody, ultimately gets to watch the archive on the same day. Thanks to all of our patrons and everyone who supports us in any way. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to help us, head to patreon.com sifted. You can pledge a dollar, a hundred dollars a month, whatever you want. Everything makes a difference and we appreciate it very much. I'll see you next time.